part of my thinking in these sermons through Psalms is trying to develop in my own mind something of a, for lack of a better term, kind of a worldview or theology of life. And we started looking at Psalm 1 and 2, and they're helping us structure our entry into the Psalms. We looked at Psalm 104, which spoke about the world we lived in and gave us this very um, God-centered, full view of the creation that is around us. We spent time talking about... um, the, uh, the Word of God, Psalm 19, Psalm 119, we looked at Psalm 90, the Psalm of Moses, and it was particularly important, I think, because of saying to, to us all how dependent we are on our daily life, our very breath uh, in, in this world. And now, uh, tonight, I wanted to look at uh, another reality of my life as I live it, and it is that uh, each day, each moment, there is a king in this world. As, uh, it, and as some of our prayers reflected even tonight, sometimes it doesn't appear that way. And so this is a wonderful reminder. And it really is wonderful that uh, we had the morning sermon emphasize that, and now we get this uh, similar emphasis from, you know, a thousand years earlier. The psalm, you you will see that uh, if you have your Bibles open there, uh, it is, its title is Of Solomon, and Solomon may well have been the author of this, uh, whether praying for himself or having the people pray for him or for his next son who would take the throne, um, could be that uh, David instructed his son Solomon before David died about kingship. And so there, Solomon may have put the words of David in this psalm. But that doesn't, um, those, are, those are things for the academics to deal with. What we're going to look at, we're going to look, and it'll be, uh, we'll move through this, uh, five, at least five different characteristics, I'll call it, of the king, our king, and his kingdom. So we will start. The first, the first is the character of the king and his kingdom, and that is summed up in the opening four verses in particularly two words. You'll see it there. Justice is one of those words and righteousness. Righteousness gets repeated three times in uh, the opening three verses with justice getting uh, twice uh, repeated there. And, And what we're talking about here is this king, the prayer initially is, to God, O oh God, give the king your justice. Give the king your righteousness. And so there's, there's this most fundamental prayer that the king in the kingdom would be one who is absolutely righteous and therefore he is righteous in his every decision doing justice throughout the kingdom. The kingdom, you see, 
takes on these characteristics, these qualities, because the king is that way. Uh, you know your Old Testament history well enough. Many of the king, you know, well, in the book of First and Second Kings and Chronicles and such, it'll often be so and so was a king and he did what was evil or he did what was good. And the implications are basically that the people went the way of the king. And that in those cases, those kings were certainly not like this, like this one that is, is spoken about. But it's the same principle. The king receiving God's righteousness and God's justice, therefore, therefore his kingdom is established that way. Uh, so verse 1 is the prayer for that. Verse 2, that with the king so endowed with these traits, he will judge the people rightly. They get treated rightly. And verse 3 then reflects the fruit of that, that process. Now we might ask the question, did Solomon possess this trait? Well, in some measure, particularly in his early years, but there were two really large areas of sin in Solomon's life. One was he multiplied wives tremendously. Uh, and the second is he actually, over the course of his kingship, oppressed the people. It is when you have Solomon's death and Rehoboam, his son, is coming to take the throne Jeroboam comes, and in 1 Kings 12, verse 4, Jeroboam says to Rehoboam, uh, Your father made our yoke heavy. And you'll know what happens. You know, Rehoboam listens to his young advisors, and he basically comes out and says, If you think your yoke was heavy then, wait till I'm in charge, and the kingdom splits apart. So Solomon did have his areas of great sin. And immediately you can see how this psalm written so long ago, a thousand years before our Lord's life, can only be fulfilled in him. From this psalm, from the, from the time of, of Saul or David at the start of the kingship, all the way up, only till you get to the Lord Jesus Christ, do you get to a person that can take these titles and characteristics in their perfect uh, definition. Jesus is not only righteous himself, but what a wonderful truth. He gives righteousness. For Paul will write 1 Corinthians 1, 30 and 31, Because of him you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Well, let's look at the next section of verses, verses uh, 5 through 7. And here we pick up another theme, another characteristic of the Lord, the King, and His kingdom. And it is the fact that it, is, uh, it's, it concerns its duration. How long will this king live and reign? How long will his kingdom be established? Well, it is an eternal kingdom. It is an endless kingdom. 
And you see that, once again, that, that process, because the king is eternal, can only be fulfilled in Jesus Christ, therefore his kingdom is eternal. And so in verse 5, for example, while the sun endures, you see that time reference. Uh, is sun still shining tomorrow, Lord willing? Uh, you know, it will be and uh, has been for all of these thousands of years. If we go out and uh, if the moon is present, uh, you know, if we're, it's visible, you know, it will be there. And you get these time words, as long as the sun endures, as long as the moon is there, and then an Old Testament way of speaking about eternity throughout the generations, throughout all the generations. And then in verse 7, you have other time references. In his days, happens to be these days do not end, till the moon be no more. Now the original thought of whoever the author of the, the psalm is might have been that there would be an endless Davidic dynasty accomplished by successive kings. That was most likely the thinking uh, at the time. But the language of this psalm actually uses language addressed to this one king and speaks of this one king as continuing on. These verses also include this idea of prosperity that runs through this psalm, but we will get to that later. Ultimately, we are speaking uh, here about the Lord and, and the glorious truth that he does not change. Uh, we could go to Hebrews. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's the theme of Revelation. That's why we started our call to worship there. It is an eternal kingdom because the king of that kingdom possesses life. He is the living God, and he never dies. Spurgeon, in writing on this psalm, makes a wonderful comparison. He says, As long as there are men on earth, Christ shall have a throne among them. Instead of the fathers shall be the children. Each generation shall have a regeneration in its midst. Let pope and devil do what they may. Even at this hour... We have before us the tokens of his eternal power. Since he ascended to his throne in Spurgeon's time, he says 1,800 years ago, we can say 2,000 years ago, his dominion has not been overturned. Though the mightiest of empires have gone like visions of the night. And so he says, we see on the shore of time the wrecks of the Caesars, the relics of the Mughals, the last remnants of the Ottomans, Charlemagne, Maximilian, Napoleon, how they flit like shadows before us. They were and are not, but Jesus forever is, as the houses of uh, Habsburg and others, they have their hour but the Son of David has all hours and ages as his own. So that is another trait of our king and therefore of the kingdom. Thirdly is verses 8 through 11. What will be the size of this kingdom? 
How large will it be? Over what extent will this king reign? And it is a universal king kingdom. He is the universal king. So we have understood that he is not only righteous and therefore just in decisions, he's not only everlasting in time, but he is a universal king. And you, you see it again in the language of these uh, verses 8 through 11. Verse 8, there's a key word, dominion, rule. He rules from sea to sea, from the river, which is seen as the Euphrates, to, but, but look, to the ends of the earth. Verse 9, there are desert people. The peoples of the desert come to him and his enemies. Verse 10, the kings of Tarshish. Tarshish is seen most likely as being in Spain. It would, and, and you can sense why the language, uh, you say, well, why didn't they refer to China or, or whatever? Well, first of all, it's inspired and they, he wrote what was, he was supposed to write. But they write according to what they know. And, and Spain, what we call Spain, would have been seen as, as the ends of the earth. It's all they would have known about. They're making universal statements. And the climax comes in verse 11 for sure, where he says, May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. There is this universal dominion of this kingdom. And once again, Solomon ruled when Israel's kingdom was at its peak, at its largest. It's not remotely like what is described here. It was a wonderful time for the most part in Israel's history, but not like this. Jesus' rule is not only for all time, but it embraces all places and all peoples. None can escape his righteous rule. It is not seen in its fullness and perfection now, but there comes a day when it will. Once again, in the book of Revelation, Revelation 11, uh, 15 says this, the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. It is all the world and for all time. The fourth section of this psalm, verses 12 through 14, this is just, to me, um, so spectacular. We, we have that adage, that slogan, what uh, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely, that kind of thing. And, and that's basically, uh, it's too true too many times when we think about kings and politicians and things of that nature. But my, what a, what a vision here. What a, not, not a vision, but what a truth about your Lord is revealed all this time ago through Psalm 72 in these verses. I, I've entitled this, The Heart of Our King in His Kingdom. These verses 12 through 14. There's no conflict between Him being righteous and just. But look at... Look at the people that are mentioned here. There are four different words in Hebrew used to describe them. Three times 
there is the reference to the needy. It's a word that speaks obviously about that. People that are in want, needy, poor. They cry out to their king. There's another word that in this English standard version gets translated poor. And it's the idea as well of being afflicted, being humbled by life circumstances. There is as well this interesting one. It's really the negation of a verb. Him who has no helper. What a sad place to be in life. To be a person who has no companion no helper, maybe no family. Here's this lone person. Oh, what, what kind of life is for him? And yet this king observes that person, and we'll speak in a moment there. And the last one is he mentions the weak, and that's the idea of something that is easily broken, something that is poor, something that is lowly, thin, uh, delicate, not in a fine way, but something that is easily crushed. Well, what does this king do with such people in his kingdom? Oh boy, the verbs are tremendous. First of all, he delivers them. The idea of snatching out of something. He brings them out of these dreadful things. He delivers the needy when he calls. The needy person cries out in prayer. And this great, eternal, universally reigning king takes note of the individual crying out. He has pity. He looks with compassion on them. This is... It, one, one other use in the Old Testament is the end of Jonah, where God speaking to Jonah in chapter 4, where the plant has grown up and then withered, and Jonah's mad about the plant withering. And the Lord uses this same word. He says, you had compassion on the plant. Shouldn't I have compassion on the people of Nineveh? This, this king has this caring heart. He not only delivers and has pity, then there's that very well-used verb in Hebrew, he saves. That's at the heart of the name Jesus. Uh, He saves them. He delivers them. Then you have, what else does he do? He redeems them. This is the word to act as a kinsman redeemer. This is your Boaz moment here. What kind of king do we have? To the one who who has no one to help him, it seems. Here comes the kinsman redeemer alongside and redeems out of distress. And then a most interesting phrase, he he counts their, their lives as precious. Precious is their blood in his sight. Van Gemeren about this says, The king loves them and values their very lives as his own. He cares for the citizens of his kingdom. And that, how marvelous is that for us? Redeemer, deliverer, savior. One who values your life is this great, eternal, universal, righteous king.
All of this can only be truly said of Jesus again. He is our Savior, Redeemer, great deliverer, lover of our souls. And the last section here technically of the psalm is verses 15 through 17. And here we pick up in great measure this theme of prosperity. It has been, it's been brought out earlier in the psalm at different, thing, at different points about uh, mown grass like water and, and such as that. But there's prosperity for the king that is prayed for in verse 15. Long may he live. And by the way, make sure you bring your gifts and praises to him. May the gold of Sheba be given to him. There's prosperity for the king. There's prosperity for the land and therefore the people in verse 16. Abundance of grain on the tops of the mountains, etc. And people populating the cities. You, You get this sense of a return to Eden's fruitfulness that, uh, that the psalm is talking about. And there is, there really is often when people groups have truly practiced care for one another and true righteousness and justice, quite often there is prosperity in that whether it is the marriage couple or the family or the church, quite often the blessing of God rests on on those situations. There is prosperity throughout his kingdom, verse 17. What is significant about verse 17, I don't know if it sounds familiar to you or not, but there is once again this return to the king. May his name endure forever. His fame continue. All this again, glory be to this king forever. But the last two lines, may people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. So the people get blessed in him and all nations are blessed in him. Almost everyone sees this as the psalmist picking up the promise to Abraham. In Genesis 12, all the way back then, God came to Abraham and said, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That really is where the psalm most likely ends. This, these last three verses are a doxology, but they are very appropriate for not only the, the ending of this, this particular psalm, but what, you're, what you see there is that book two of the Psalter is being concluded here. And in light of this king, your king, my king, the Lord Jesus, these words are so appropriate. Don't we want to say, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth, universal again, may the whole earth be filled with his glory. Just a couple of points of application. I think we we will truly understand not only this psalm, but our Lord and his kingship when we respond 
with this kind of praise and prayer. There's the joyful, triumphant note that goes all the way through this psalm for this kind of king. But there, to call to use royal, kingly language, doesn't it mean, even as our catechism and the prayers there are mentioned, doesn't it mean that we would have a joyful and willing submission to Him? There's that phrase, He looks at the crowds as He's walking and, and saying, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? And I think as well as we would do that, surely then the church, me as an individual, our families, shouldn't Christ's people then be engaged similarly as this king? What do I mean by that? In other words, shouldn't we be a people who rescue the perishing as best we can? Answer that cry of the needy and the poor. Deliver the oppressed and abused. Shouldn't the church be characterized by compassion and by righteousness and by justice? I hope you will make these things your prayer, that we will respond in, in praise and thanksgiving, that today, tonight, at this moment, and forever, there is a king in your world. It is one and only King Jesus. Praise God, he is righteous. He is just. He is compassionate and loving and caring. And he will win. Evil will not triumph. And that should give us hope as we, as we go forward. Let's pray. Lord, bring to bear your presence and your, your marvelous kingship to our minds and hearts. Let us be those people who respond with joy. Let us be those who would run to you as a strong tower, finding refuge in you, in your power. Let us be those who who also want to be like you, to care, to, uh, to do the hard work so sometimes of just dealings and, and of the practice of righteousness, of the putting away of evil and sin in our own lives. Let it start in my own heart, in our own hearts. Rule there, we pray. And as you do that, you will, we will find you ruling more and more in this church and therefore throughout this region. This is our prayer in your name. Amen.